This year, we're featuring some of our most valuable episodes, bringing back popular and helpful topics for all people with type 1 diabetes, but also for those who are newly diagnosed. Please enjoy this MVP episode. Today, we have an extra special guest who I've been following on YouTube for years. Dr. Ken Berry is a family physician based in Tennessee with over 1.5 million subscribers on YouTube alone. Colleen from the future again, Dr. Ken Berry is now up to 2.33 million YouTube subscribers, which is so cool. Not including other platforms. He's an avid advocate of keto, carnivore, and basically taking back ownership of your health by changing what you eat. Ken's channel was one of the first resources besides Reddit that I landed on when doing research into low-carb and keto in 2015. One of his major focuses is on teaching type 2 diabetics how to reverse that condition. And I found it so helpful because of the similarities between type 1 and type 2, despite them being two completely different diseases. I spent the first 22 years of my life on the standard American diet, believing I could never give up carbs because I was basically taught I couldn't survive without them. In the last five and a half years, I've lost over 70 pounds, cut my insulin use by over half, reduced my A1Cs into the 5% range, and I feel way healthier, focused, and energetic thanks to drastically reducing my carb count. So Ken, welcome to the show. I am like stoked to talk to you today. Oh, thank you so much for having me. I love hearing your story. I think the stories like that are one of the most powerful things that somebody who's been blessed with type 1 diabetes, when you start to hear stories like that, you're like, wait a minute. I think it, it is an immediate source of hope. And, you know, back in your early type 1 days, there wasn't a lot of hope. You you felt kind of screwed, kind of left out, kind of like, well, I guess, I, I guess that's that. But to realize, no, no, there's hope. You can absolutely have a normal A1C again. And you can absolutely slash the risks of all the terrible complications that us doctors scare you type ones with. Like, look, if you don't get your A1C down, you're, you know, this and this, all these things are going to happen and none of them are good. Immediately you got hope. It's like, oh my God, if Colleen did this, I could probably do this too. And I, I love your story. Thank you. Was there anything that I missed about your intro that you think is pertinent to type 1 diabetics that you want to talk about? No, not really. I think really type 1 and type 2 diabetes are related only in that you will get sicker, suffer, and die sooner if you eat a high-carbohydrate diet. That's really the only similarity, I think, between the two. Otherwise, as you know, they're completely different pathophysiology and otherwise. But the one thing that they have in common is you need to eat a very low carbohydrate diet full of healthy fats and healthy proteins if you want to control your diabetes and if you want to live to be an, a healthy, old, vigorous, active diabetic, then you have to have a normal A1C for that to happen. That is my goal, living into the 90s. That's it. So what was your path to keto? Like, how did you develop such a strong passion for helping diabetics in particular transform their health? Well, my, my path into keto, I all my life have been very slender, impossible to gain weight, impossible to put on any muscle. Uh, but that changed in my mid-30s, give or take. I was very busy with a, a growing medical practice, working a lot of night shifts in the local emergency, de emergency department. And started to get fat and actually started to become quite pre-diabetic. was miserable every day. had all kinds of little medical things popping up, aches and pains, reflux, rosacea, terrible heartburn, the pre-diabetes. I didn't even know enough at that time to check my C-peptide or fasting insulin level. I'm sure I was very hyperinsulinemic, but I didn't even, uh, I was, that was very early in my growth curve, right? So I didn't even know to check for that. But uh, so I started out trying to fix me because, uh, as you may or may not be able to tell from what little accent I have, I'm a Southern boy. And where I grew up, things have to make sense or people will either make fun of you or they will ignore you. And so walking into a patient's exam room, being a fat doctor at my heaviest, I weigh 297 pounds and then proceeding to tell them they need to lose some weight. And then you can watch their eyes, watch my eyes very close. If this is what had happened, I would say, look, we're going to have to get rid of some of that weight. They would go, they would look down in my belly and then back up at my eyes. 
And I think most girls have had that experience, but with another body part, right? And it, it, like immediately you feel demoralized and degraded. So like, dude, I'm telling you the truth and you're going to look at my belly? Really? I'm trying to give you some advice, but I can't blame them. I was a fat doctor. How are you supposed to listen to me? And so I had to fix that. I could not go through my entire career being this fat doctor with what we call in the South Dunlap, which means your belly Dunlapped over your belt. I couldn't, I couldn't be that doctor. And so I had to fix that. And I, I, so I adopted, since I was pre-diabetic, I adopted the American diabetes diet, started jogging, ate lots of whole grains, drank fruit smoothies and veggie smoothies and, and did all the things and proceeded to gain some more weight. And my A1C went up a couple of, couple more tenths of a point. And it, it was at that point I said, okay, either I have a unique human physiology that no other human has or I've been taught something incorrectly. There's some, something's not right here, right? SAR, that's a, a technical term we use in the emergency room. It means something ain't right. Something, something ain't right here. So I started really digging into nutrition at first traditional sources of nutrition, but they all pointed me right back to the lots of whole grains, lots of fruits and veggies and avoid saturated fat, avoid cholesterol, avoid red meat. And none of that, they didn't work. It didn't work for me. So I thought, well, I got to find something that works because I can't be this fat doctor for the rest of my life. So I, I, I discovered paleo, started doing that. At first, it was a very high carb paleo, lots of quinoa, lots of spaghetti squash, lots of sweet potato fries, and had a tiny bit of improvement, but not much at all. And while paleo, I read the Primal Blueprint by Sisson. I read The Paleo Diet by Cordain. And I read a 50-cent copy of the Atkins Diet Revolution that I bought at a rummage sale. And those three, I'm like, okay, everything these guys are saying is almost exactly backwards from what the mainstream advice is. But let me, let me try it for three months. What could it hurt? I'm already a fat pre-diabetic doctor. How much worse could it get? And so after about three months of that, I had I had lost a good little amount of weight. Everything was doing a little better, A1C coming down. And during the time I was doing that kind of primal paleo, lower carb paleo, I started reading about this diet called a ketogenic diet. And I'm like, hmm, that's interesting. Let me check into that. And, and turns out there's actually quite a bit of research about it in different fields of, of medicine, different specialties of medicine, using it for this, that, and the other. And then also in nutrition science as well. And I thought, well, okay, I'm going to try it for 90 days. What can it hurt, right? And immediately when I started a ketogenic diet, which most people would define as, as a total carbohydrate intake of under 50 gram, total grams of carbs a day. Some people define it as under 20 total. But I was definitely doing under 50 grams a day. Immediately the weight loss started to happen, which means I was, I was burning fat, right? And when, all of us, when we say I want to lose weight, what we really mean is I want to lose some fat. And depending on who you are and where your fat is, you have a specific fat in mind that you want to get rid of, right? But that's what we all mean when we say, I want to lose weight. I wanted to, and I started immediately losing fat, but also noticed I started to put on muscle and not a lot. I, I was no Schwarzenegger, but I was, I was like, I could tell I was carrying more muscle than I normally did. And I wasn't working out anymore, which was also very weird. My severe heartburn got 80% better. I went from taking two uh, Nexium every day, which is a very strong reflux prescription reflux medication. I was taking two a day for years. It was so terrible. And so I, I, I stopped that, and I was just taking a, a Tums maybe twice a week and a swig of apple cider vinegar every now and then. That was it. It was much better. My arthritis pain got better. My rosacea went completely away, which I was having to put steroid cream on two or three times a week to keep it from being so obviously red that it looked like I'd been slapped for saying something inappropriate. It went completely away. And so, you know, this is the N equals one experiment here, but I'm like blown away. I thought, well, this stuff's all got to be coincidental. There's no way that just eating a diet high in healthy fat and healthy protein and very low in carbohydrates, there's no way it can reverse all these chronic medical things. So then I, I, I did a one month carnivore challenge on my Facebook page. I'm like, Hey guys, I've been reading about this crazy Sean Baker guy. He's an orthopedic surgeon. He eats only ribeye. Let's try a month of carnivore because carnivore is the next logical step. If you're stepping down the carbohydrates, because that's as close to zero carb as you can get eating any kind of human appropriate food. 
And after one month of carnivore, my heartburn was completely gone. In which to any, I mean, literally none, no, no Tums, no Rolaids, no apple cider vinegar. I didn't need any of that. And I had lost my weight loss, which had stalled at about 250 ish, which is still great compared to 297. Immediately started to, to step down again. I started to burn more fat, started to hold even more like shoulder and trapezius and, and arm muscle not working out anymore. But I was like, what is happening? This is so weird. But I continued to read and research and look. And, and I actually what I, what really brought it home for me is when I went back as a doctor and I basically ignored everything I was taught in the, the last half of my medical training. And I went back and focused on the first two years of my medical school training, which consists entirely of physiology, pathophysiology, cell and molecular biology, biochemistry, like the, the basic wiring and machinery of the human body. Then all of this stuff kind of started to make sense. But when you try to make it make sense with the, the last two thirds of your medical training, which is all about the prescription pad, and oh, you need a pill for this and you need a pill for that, then none of that makes any sense. It all sounds like woo-woo foolishness. But when you go back to the basic physiology of how a human being's biochemistry operates, the cell and molecular biology, you're like, oh, no, it actually does make a lot of sense that this diet would do these things. And so it was, it was a, it was after I'd gotten fat and then lost all the weight with, with, you know, low carb to keto to carnivore. Nisha was, my wife, Nisha, Nisha loves it. Oh my God. She's, she is my saving grace. She said, you should make a YouTube video. And initially I was like, that's foolish. I'm a doctor. Why would I, you know, that's silly foolishness. I'm no, I'm not a YouTuber, but. Then one day I come home from the clinic. She's like, how many people do you take care of today? I said, oh, 30. I don't know. She said, that's great. I'm proud of you for helping 30 people be healthier. What if you could have helped 3,000 people be healthier today? And I was like, I hate when you're right. Yeah, I hate it. But she was 100% right. And so I started the YouTube channel and it, it quickly took off, not because of anything special on my part, I think the reason that that YouTube channel took off and has been so successful is because people are hungry for health. People are really ravenous for information that not only sounds rational, but actually when you put it to use, it works. Like people are really, people find that to be really cool and fascinating. It's like, well, I watched this YouTube doctor and they said, you know, eat the cabbage soup diet and I did it and nothing happened. So then that's it. You're done with that guy because the cabbage soup diet didn't work. But when you try something a, a YouTuber says and it's like, boom, immediate results, you're like, oh, I think I'll subscribe to that channel because that kind of worked. And I, so I don't think it has anything to do with me. I think it has to do with all, all to do with the information that human beings are by design and whatever uh, definition you want to give that word design whether a creator or evolution, whatever, we are by design low-carbohydrate mammals. If you feed us a high-carbohydrate diet, we won't starve to death, and we won't die from acute toxicity, but we will start to fatten, and we will start to become pre-diabetic, and we will start to have all these little chronic maladies, these little chronic medical problems, both physical and mental. Let's not forget the mental part, right? Because that's not a proper human diet. But when you feed us a very low-carbohydrate diet full of fatty meat and full of just nutrient-dense foods, immediately all those chronic medical conditions that seem like just part of our DNA start to get better and go away. And it's like, oh, that makes perfect sense. That's why I've started calling it uh, low-carb keto carnivore. I call it a proper human diet because any species of animal, if you feed them a diet that's not, a, not proper for that species, they're going to get sick. That, that's common sense, right? But somehow we feel like that that common sense shouldn't apply to humans. We're somehow special. We're different. That shouldn't apply to us. But my contention is, is that it 100% matters in, in humans. It's relevant in humans. And you ignore it at your own peril. Wow, that was really cool. That was great to hear. So is there any type 1 or type 2 diabetes in your family that has had an impact on your work or had an impact on your videos at all? 
No, I was, I'm, I'm, I'm completely selfish in that regard. It was my pre-diabetes. That was the thing. I was like, oh, heck no. This is, I'm not, I'm not going to be a doctor who's got type two diabetes and takes three pills and then, you know, an injection twice a day. I'm just not going to be that guy. I can't do that. It's not in, not in the way I'm designed. So, uh, but yeah, I don't really have any other family members. Most of my family is relatively lean on one side and a little chunky on the other. So I've got, you know, that mix of, of DNA. Uh, but buddy, let me tell you what, at about 35, I blew up like a balloon. And I'm sure it was a combination of just a pure junk standard American diet and all the stress of, of trying to grow a clinic and working nights in the emergency room, all that together, plus some, you know, some personal relationship things, all that kind of crap just added up. And I just was fat and miserable. And, uh, but, but no other family members really have ever, no, no type one is for sure. Maybe a scattered type two here and there. We typically see that the, the type ones are like the only ones in their family. Yep. It's Very so common. fascinating. Even though Very you need common. to have kind of a, a genetic pedigree for it, still only one type one diabetic. I'm that person. Yeah, and that is, you do need to have a little, a few little genetic defects to, to develop type one diabetes. But I, I really predict that 10, 20, 30 years from now, we're going to look back and it, it's going to be something in the diet. And I've got some theories, but it's too early to talk about those. But there's something in the diet that causes an autoimmune reaction against the beta cells in the pancreas. And that's that's what leads the majority of, of type ones, if not all the type ones, to become type ones. There may be a viral insult that that makes perfect sense that you might contract some little RSV or some little you know virus when you're young. And so now you've got the genetics and you've had the viral hit. Now it's just going to take whatever in the diet that, that causes that autoimmune inflammation, zaps your beta cells, and then congratulations, you're a type 1. Everything you just said is in line with, with, with what my parents and my endocrinologist think, because I, I was I, diagnosed I, slightly after getting um, a vaccine when I was 2. Yeah, and that wouldn't surprise me if that doesn't – could that I don't think that's the only cause, but that could replicate – the viral infection sequela, right? It could mimic that even though you didn't have a viral infection. Yeah. What nutrition guidance do most endocrinologists or physicians give their type 1 patients? And what's wrong with that guidance? The vast majority of them are going to give them the American Diabetes Association handout. And that's exactly what they're going to give them. And let's be, let's be clear and let's be honest here. That's very, a very safe thing for an endocrinologist to do. As, as a doctor who has to worry about uh, liability, malpractice, all those things, right? I mean, you really put your neck out to get your head chopped off if you start recommending a diet for type 1 diabetics that is not approved by the American Diabetes Association. That That's really dangerous for, for a professional to do that because then if if anything goes wrong, even if it's not caused by the diet, so if you put someone on a carnivore diet for type 1 diabetes, and then six months later, they get hit by a bus. There's literally still an avenue for a lawsuit. I'm not kidding. Like, literally, that could still be heard in court that somehow you told this poor type 1 to eat meat, and then they got hit by a bus. You may have some liability there. Literally, not kidding. And not doctors are well aware of this. Having a medical license is a privilege, not a right. And it can be, it's, it's, it can be taken away at a whim of the state medical board. And all doctors are aware of that. So it's very easy for an endocrinologist to stay in their lane and just be like, well, this is what the ADA says. So this is what you should do. And I know that you're going to have an elevated A1C and I know you're going to have blood sugar spikes all the time eating this diet. But surely the ADA knows that too. So I guess you're just supposed to match your carbs with your insulin and I'll just keep increasing the amount of insulin I give you every month as your, as your blood sugars and A1Cs keep going up on this ADA diet. But that's, that's the state of the art. And, uh, I don't think it is the state of the art. I think it's egregious that endocrinology, endocrinologists unthinkingly, absent-mindedly hand that ADA handout to their type one patients. And don't, they don't think about it. They don't research it. They don't, at no point as this poor type one's A1C keeps just slowly creeping up. At no point do they go, maybe, maybe that's not the right diet for all my type ones. 
And let me look into that. I think that needs to happen way more often than it actually does happen. So how can endocrinologists and physicians get around that that liability problem and start recommending what you recommend, which is low carb? Yeah, you can't. Currently, there's no way for them to get around it. But what happens is you have to, doctors are definitely risk averse and they're definitely want to avoid lawsuits 100%. But the vast majority of doctors are also good people who want, who, who went to med school to help people be healthier. That's really true. And so when a, an endocrinologist has seen a preponderance and basically how it starts is somebody like you, you move to a new city, you go you find an endocrinologist because you're type one, you're an idiot if you don't have an endocrinologist, right? And you go see this new guy and they're like, Hey, what are you doing? You're like, well, I'm, I'm, I eat a, you know, ketogenic diet or low carb diet. And they're like, Oh my God, no, what? What are you talking about? And then they look at your labs and your A1C is 5.3 and they're like, and you're using 90% less insulin than 90% of their type ones. And for an endocrinologist, right? Have you had this experience? Have you done this to an endocrinologist? It's the coolest thing ever. You can literally watch their brain explode inside their, their skull because they're like, what, what the world no longer makes sense. But, and so after one patient, he'll probably just ignore that. But then after 10 of you guys do that, you can't ignore that. If you've got, if you're, if you're still in any way, still a student of medicine, trying to learn, always learn, and you've got a good heart and you're really wanting to do the best for your patients, you know, you want all your type ones to have a normal A1C. And the only type ones in your entire practice that have a normal A1C are the people eating low carb. When you've seen that 10 or 15 or 20 times, at that point, you're like, this is the way that this is the way. I'm sorry, but low carb is the way. Please forgive me, ADA, but I'm not going to give people your handout anymore if they're type 1 diabetics. I'm going to tell them to eat low carb. And I may not even call it low carb. I may not even say the K word because that's that's a dirty word in some endocrinology offices. But I'm just going to say eat lots of meat and veg. Do not eat bread. Do not eat sugars. You, you know, sure, on anniversaries and birthdays, you can have a little piece of cake. But on a daily basis, you need to be eating very low carb. That's how we're going to protect you from all the disastrous consequences that come from being a, a, a type one whose A1C is always high for decades because that you literally are going to suffer if you don't get your A1C down. Here's a way to do it that's actually sustainable, very nutritious, delicious. And yeah, I might get sued, but at this point, I've seen so many people like Colleen, so many smart ass type ones who are like, I'm eating low carb and you can't change my mind. That they're like, okay, that's got to be the way. I don't know why, I don't know how, but low carb is the way for type one diabetics. My endocrinologist is also in functional medicine, and I am to her a boring diabetic. That's how we want to keep it. All of our appointments are Absolutely. about other things, not my not my blood sugars. You've got time to talk about the weather at your appointment because all your numbers are great. Pretty much. Yep. So, what are some resources that? our listeners can go to to learn about overall nutrition and specifically type or excuse me specifically low carb nutrition so there's there's several resources i recommend to every type 1 diabetic i talk to first is dr bernstein's book i think it's called the diabetes solution 100% every type 1 diabetic in the universe needs to read that book or listen to the audible because there's an audible ask Mr. Dr. ADD here. I know there's an audible. That's because that's the only way I can read a book these days. You got to read Bernstein's book. Number two, if you're on Facebook, if you're not, I understand, but if you are, you need to be part of a group talk called type one grit. It's a huge community of type one diabetics who use low carb, even for very, very young children, they, 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 they feed their type 1 diabetic a very low-carbohydrate diet. They all have normal A1Cs or are moving towards that. All of them have very, very few hypoglycemic episodes, which is the biggest fear being a type 1 diabetic. And then all three of them, they also have uh, low A1Cs. They have very few hypos, and they eat a low-carbohydrate diet. Right. And they use 80 or 90 percent less insulin than they were using before they started the low carb strategy. And so any type one diabetic listing, if you're not low carb yet, you need to find a doctor you can work with, because when you start a low carbohydrate diet, 
you're going to quickly need less insulin. I mean, very quickly, just within a matter of days. So you need to have a, a learned health partner who can walk you through how to step your insulin down as you step the carbohydrates down. I don't recommend that for type 2 diabetics. Typically, they can get off their medicine in a few months, and it, it's very it's very obvious when they need to quit the type 2 diabetic medications. But if you're on in, injectable insulin, especially the fast-acting ones, you can get in trouble really quick if you eat very low carb, but you keep injecting the same amount of insulin. So you need somebody you can work with more than just a Facebook group or you, I read it in a book. You need a doc. You can call, leave a message with the nurse and stuff. But after you, after a type 1 diabetic has been low carb for, I don't know, well, this is probably a question better answered by you, Colleen. After three to six months, you can do this on your own because you've reduced your insulin usage so much and you've got, you understand low carb. You know what actually has carbs in it and what doesn't. You know what has fast carbs versus slower carbs. All that stuff, you've got it, you've got it figured out and you can handle it on your own. But I would say the first three months, a type one needs to find a doctor who understands low carb diets so they can help them reduce the insulin. I actually did not do that. I did all of my research on my own and then just did it myself. <laughs> yeah. And I do think that's possible. And this is me being the, the risk averse anti litigious doctor saying you need to work with a doctor. Is it possible to do without that? 100%. Yeah. But just to be safe, because, you know, not everybody is as smart as you out there, Colleen. Some people, mathematics was a was an optional course. And the, the, so it's hard for them to calculate they may need to work with a doctor or at least, uh, you know, a, a, a educated, a diabetic, a diabetes educator who understands the low carb diets. But I don't think everybody has to, but I say that just so nobody sees me. You had a conversation a while ago with a type one diabetic doing carnivore. And yep. one thing that really, really stuck out to me during that, that interview was his total daily dose of insulin was around nine units. Mm -hmm. Can you talk about the impact of such low total daily dose of insulin and how type 1s can prevent low carb while, or how type 1s can prevent low blood sugars while eating such a low carb diet? Yeah, and you do it, it that's exactly how you do it. Every human needs a, a basal amount of insulin, right? And most of us, our pancreas handles that for us. We don't have to think about it, for, but a type 1 obviously has to consciously think about these things. And uh, I actually had several type one diabetics in my practice before the fire, and they all were they were all using Lantus once a day at bedtime, and and one used eight units at bedtime, one used nine units at bedtime, and the other used eleven units at bedtime, and that was all the insulin they used all day because they were they were carnivores. They would eat very uh, fatty red meats. That's what they lived on. They you know, they would get seventy thirty hamburger. They ate lots of eggs. And they ate lots of fatty cuts of, of different steaks or fatty seafood. And so they, the, even though the protein was raising their postprandial glucose, definitely it did because you, you need a little insulin if you're going to eat protein too. But they, they were so low carb. And I thought later on, I, I checked to see peptide on them and no, none of the three had zero. See peptides. One was 0.1, one was 0.2, one was 0.3, which tells us they're still making a tiny amount of insulin, right? But they were not making enough insulin to handle a regular carbohydrate diet. If they'd been eating the ADA diet, their blood sugar would have been 400, 500 all day after every meal. And, but eating carnivore, they were able to just use basil and nothing else. And they had, they had A1Cs, all three of those guys, their A1C was 5.5 or under. And so, and, and so then Dr. Bernstein, I think is where it comes from. He talks about the law of low numbers. And when you're, when you're eating a lot of carbs and you're having to inject a lot of insulin, your risk of miscalculating somewhere is go sky high and you are going to have a hypo episode. It's, it's just going to happen. You've got to have your, your dextrose tabs and you got to have your orange juice and you got to have your, you know, whatever, because it's going to happen. But once you lower your carbohydrates enough to be using a very low amount of insulin, it becomes, unless you just do something stupid, you're just not going to have any hypos. And so you just don't, you still want to be prepared, of course, but you, it's just super rare. And the three uh, carnivore type ones I had in my practice, they hadn't had a hypo in like over in years, one year, two years, three years. They just didn't have hypos anymore. Because unless you miscalculate, and uh, Bernstein, Bernstein really covers this great in his book, 
it's not just addition, subtraction, and multiplication to figure your carbs in and how much insulin you need. It's really calculus. And unless you've, you know, got a degree in mathematics, you can never calculate exactly how much insulin you need. And the more insulin you're taking, the higher your margin of error is. And the margin of error, that's where you're going to have your hypos or your hypers is in that margin of error. But when you've, when you've decreased your daily insulin intake from two or 300 units a day down to 10, 20, 30, 40 units of insulin a day, that margin of error gets very tiny. And so it's much easier to calculate how much insulin you need. And it's a, it's, it's much less likely that you're going to miscalculate and have a dangerous hypo. I saw that when I went from the high carb SAD diet to low carb initially. I have a really cool graph of my CGM numbers. It was like super high, all like, like roller coaster graph. And I had, I was using like over 70 units of insulin a day. And then after like six days of low carb, my number is basically flattened and I cut it like my insulin by half. So even just going down to like less than 50 carbs was beautiful. Yeah. Any degree of reduction in daily carbohydrate intake is going to help you as a type one diabetic, even a little reduction. But to get a normal A1C like Colleen has, you gotta, you gotta really cut the carbs down to a very, very low level. So that you don't have, and, and you're right in the, in the Facebook group, type one grit, they'll post their CGMs and I, it's just basically a flat line. Oh, and this is like in a three year old diabetic or a five year old diabetic. And you know, their curves are usually just like this, but they're just flat because they don't eat hardly any carbohydrates. That's so cool. What would you say to a type one diabetic who doesn't think they can give up carbs? Because I've seen this a lot where they're just like, I could never give up my, my donuts, my pasta, even not yeah. just diabetics, but anybody. Yeah. I would say that, um, sugar addiction, carbohydrate addiction is a real thing. It, it 100% is. We now have MRI data and PET scan data that show beyond a shadow of a doubt that when you eat a high carbohydrate, especially highly processed, and lots of sugar and lots of quick release carbohydrates, you stimulate the same areas of your brain that are stimulated when you drink alcohol or you take some illicit drug. The same areas, the same addictive areas of your brain get, get stimulated. It's all about dopamine. And so, yeah, carbohydrate addiction is real. But if you could, if, if, and so I would, I'm a very uh, blunt kind of guy. I would say, well, here it is. You're going to, you're going to give up something. Okay. You're either going to give up the pasta and the donuts and the, and the sugar and the gr processed grains, or you're going to give up a toe or give up your kidney function or give up your brain function. When you have a stroke, you're going to do one or the other. You're going to give up some stuff. And it, but if it were me, I'd rather give up the donuts and pasta than to give up my kidney function and three of my toes when I get a foot infection and it won't heal. And right. And some diabetics are not, they don't appreciate bluntness, but, but most type ones have had enough real life happen to them that they appreciate bluntness and common sense and one plus one is two. And so when you put it to them like that, they're like, yeah, no, you're right. I want to keep my toes. I want to keep my kidney function. I want to keep my potency. I don't want parts of my body to stop working. And so I will happily give up the pasta and the donuts and the cookies to keep my body parts working. That's That's been my experience, but I may tend to attract common sense people who aren't offended by bluntness. I don't know. But uh, that's been my experience. Is once you put it like that, you have no choice. This is a dilemma. There's no solution. You're either going to give up these foods or you're going to give up body parts. Most type ones are like, got it. Thank you for putting it that way. I'm on it. But carb addiction is still real, and there's going to be three to 10 days of withdrawal symptoms, right? Just like if you quit tobacco, if you quit alcohol, if you quit any drug that's habit forming, you're going to have a few days of withdrawal and you're going to feel like crap. And that's just part of it. Just because you feel like crap when you stop smoking cigarettes doesn't mean you should go back to smoking the cigarettes. It means you need to go ahead and thoroughly break the addiction. Same goes for carbohydrate withdrawal symptoms, which some people call keto flu, but I feel like we should always call things exactly what they are. And that's carbohydrate withdrawal symptoms. You need to go ahead and break the addiction completely, and it makes life a lot easier. How does uh, a low-carb or no-carb diet impact other health conditions or areas of life? 
Well, for the vast majority of people, including me and my patients and all of the thousands of people I interact with on social media, it seems like the more you cut the carbohydrates, the less chronic diseases of, of, of modern times that you have. You know, so when my heartburn first went away, I totally thought that was anecdotal. It's like, well, that's weird. I don't understand what just happened there. But then I would, I started to recommend a ketogenic diet for my most morbidly obese patients and for my patients who had the highest A1Cs, not for type ones back then, just type twos, A1C of 11 or 12 or 13. I'd be like, look, you're going to have to do three months of keto to get that under control. And then we can figure out what we're going to do after that. But you can't be running around with an A1C of 13. What are you doing? You're going to die like literally any minute if you keep that up. And uh, so, but I, I, I started getting feedback from these patients. Hey, my knee arthritis got gets better when I eat keto. Hey, my heartburn goes away. Hey, my psoriasis got 90% better when I started this keto. And the first few times I heard that, I was just like the endocrinologist who, you know, had a low carber say my A1C is normal. I was like, that's weird. But then I got 10 reports and 20 reports and 50 reports. I'm like, so, so keto's magic. Okay. What am I supposed to do with that? But now I realize once I went back and looked at the, just the, the basic physiology and biochemistry of the human animal, it's like, no, it's not magic. Biochemistry and physiology. We're low carbohydrate mammals by design. And when you feed us too many carbs, we get fat and sick and diabetic. And so then I started to think, well, gosh, okay. And now you can imagine my mind. I'm off to the races. Like, okay, what else does keto help? And, and, and indeed, many of my YouTube videos are about a specific malady or a specific diagnosis or specific disease, uh, psoriasis and low carb. There's actually a ton of research that shows if you're insulin resistant or hyperinsulinemic, your psoriasis is going to be worse. Your eczema is going to be worse. Your acne is going to be worse if you're eating a high carb diet. Yeah, exactly. I see Jesse's had some experience with that. So, but, but yeah, when you go low carb and so the, I wish I could grab every teenager on the planet who has severe acne and just slap them just to wake them up, not to be abusive and say, put down your cell phone and listen to me for 15 seconds. Eat a low carbohydrate diet and your acne will get 90% better. Okay. Go back to TikTok now. If I could just do that, I would put so many dermatologists out of business because all these teenagers would be like, so you're telling me I just eat hamburgers and hot dogs without the bun and without the ketchup, my acne will get better. I'm like, go do it. And they're like, okay, thanks. And then they're back on TikTok. But then next time they go eat, they're eating, they're eating high fat, high protein, very low carb. Their acne just goes virtually away. Tell us, tell us, Jesse, about your acne story. So it wasn't like bad scarring or like cystic acne or anything. It was just like regular teenage acne. It was bad to you though, wasn't it? What was that? It was bad to you though, wasn't it? Yeah, it was bad. I had, I like, I have pictures of like acne, just pimples everywhere on my forehead was, used to be covered and like my chin my chin's still pretty bad sometimes but like I can tell like on days I'm like oh I'm I'm going like yesterday or Thursday for example we were saying goodbye to my friend she went off to college and you know we threw her a party and there was pizza there sure enough as soon as I got home took off my foundation and makeup and stuff like that there's like another pimple Yep. Right where I didn't need yep. it. And then the next day I was like, okay, we're going to just do low carb and just wait for it to go away. And sure enough, it went yep. away within a day. Absolutely. And it worked. The beauty of low carb is it works consistently. Yeah. Every time Jesse does that, she has that celebratory high carb meal. Her acne says, Oh, hey, Jesse, how you doing? And then as soon as she goes back low carb again, the acne just withers and just goes back to its baseline. You maybe have one or two pimples a week. No big deal. Because I don't know if anybody ever has a, a pimple right where they do need it. But we, all, but we all have pimples right where we don't need them, right? That was my experience as well. Is my I used to have pretty bad acne through college, and I hated having pictures taken of me. And so I would just like avoid the camera. But as yep. soon as I went low carb, it basically all went away. It was yeah, awesome. 100%. Yeah, when I was in eighth gra ninth grade, my acne, I never had the cystic scarring acne, but just terrible pustular acne. It was just awful. Looking back at my poor class picture, it's like, oh, poor boy. I wish I could go back in time and grab you and slap you. And I didn't have TikTok back then, but I'm sure I was wasting my time doing something. And say, look, stop eating the bread and pizza and, and biscuits and donuts and your acne will get better. 
because I tried everything. My grandmother took me to the dermatologist. I tried took this pill, took that pill. We did this dries treatment and this ultraviolet treatment. None of that crap helped. I mean, I couldn't tell any difference whatsoever. So I thought I was just screwed. I just had acne and that's just how it was. Nobody was around to tell me back then, dude, cut the carbs and your acne will go virtually away. And I, I wish I could time travel. Uh, then I would have a much more attractive freshman in high school class photo, but I don't. So this all kind of ties into my next question about um, the relationship between high carb diets and inflammation and the immune system. Because I have the personal theory that I don't really ever get sick anymore because I eat low carb and I get outside a lot. Yep. It's another thing I hear all the time. People, when they go low carb, they tend to start doing more ancestrally appropriate things like going out in the sun, right? Yeah, actually, I enjoy going out in the sun. I don't burn as easy anymore. I enjoy it. It's fun. You actually start to do more physical activity. You actually start to form real relationships with other human beings. I know it's weird, but you do that. All these ancestral things, it's like we we remember, oh, yeah, that's important. I should do that. And uh, I think that you're, you hit the nail right on the head. When you're eating a high-carbohydrate diet, it's going to, by definition, be full of inflammatory crap. And I think some of the inflammatory things, just the sugar in general, for many, many people, the grains, any grain, from wheat to rice to oats to corn to amaranth, millet, quinoa, rye, all of them are, uh, to some degree, inflammatory. For some of us, they're super inflammatory. For others of us, they're a little inflammatory, right? Some people express that inflammation with acne. Others express it with IBS symptoms. Others express it with rosacea or psoriasis or eczema or uh, joint pain or GERD, very common. And then, and so when you remove all that inflammatory crap, all of a sudden, the chronic inflammation that you just thought was, that's who you were. I just have reflux. I just have eczema. All of a sudden you look and it's gone. And you, and, and if you're like me, you're like, I don't even know where I left my Nexium because I never need it anymore. I don't even know where it's at. So if I needed it, I couldn't find it. So I think you're exactly right. Anytime you're eating high carb, you're going to be eating way more inflammatory things in that diet. And I've been saying for four or five years now on my videos that, that keto and now carnivore are the most uninflammatory diets that I, I, I mean, they're more uninflammatory than many of the anti-inflammatory medications. They're just magically uninflammatory. They get rid of chronic inappropriate inflammation while still allowing you to have the acute inflammation that's necessary for healing, right? So if you sprain your ankle, you want that ankle to swell up and get red and hot and painful. That's that's how inflammation helps you heal, right? If you cut yourself, you want it to get red and, and, and swollen and, and to ooze that nasty junk because that's how you're going to heal that cut. But it's the chronic inappropriate inflammation that leads to all these chronic diseases that people think are part of their permanent, their just their permanent life, when in fact it's just the food they're eating. What do you think of the idea of dirty keto, like including low carb alternatives, like yep. snacks and stuff? What's, what's I think on I that? think I think dirty keto or lazy keto is much less bad than eating the standard American crap. I don't think it's as good as you could do, but it's definitely less bad than eating the sad diet. Can you kind of give us an overview of what a macro and micro nutrients are? Yeah. So there are three macronutrients. There's fat, there's protein, and there's carbohydrates. Now, fat, you, you have to eat fat. There are essential fatty acids that the human body needs. If you don't eat them, you'll get sick, you'll suffer, and you'll die prematurely. In the proteins, there are amino acids that are essential right? If you don't eat them, you will get sick, you will suffer, and you will die prematurely. In the carbohydrate macro, there is no essential sugar. There is no essential starch. There is, if you never ate another carbohydrate for the rest of your life, you would actually be fine, right? And some people will add water as the fourth macro. Some people don't. I think water is its own thing. So that's the three macronutrients. And then the micronutrients would be vitamins and minerals. And every real, whole, one-ingredient ketogenic food 
is going to be very nutrient dense, which means it's going to have a lot of vitamins and minerals, right? Now, I'm not talking about keto cakes and pies and cookies and crap like that. I'm talking about real, natural, one-ingredient ketogenic foods. They're all nutrient-dense, so you're getting tons of vitamins and minerals every time you eat a, a, a real keto food or a real carnivore food. Even the cheapest ground beef that you can buy at the supermarket, I mean the cheap stuff, you know, that comes in the five-pound stick that looks like a huge stick of bologna, even that cheap ground beef, has more vitamins and minerals than kale or spinach. Okay, it's it's crazy the amount of vitamins and minerals and and fatty acids and, and amino acids that are in meat that it just blows vegetables away, plants away, especially those superfoods like icy berry and blueberry and kale. They just they they all start crying and pack their bags and go home when you compare them to any cut of of beef. And that's because, so, so if, if, if you think a proper human diet is very low in carbohydrate and every bite you put in your mouth is going to be nutrient dense, that's, that's meat. Every single bite of any meat. I don't care if it's a pig's ear or a cow's tail. It's going to be nutrient dense and it's going to be rich in amino acids, fatty acids, vitamins and minerals. Are there any micronutrients that you can't get from meat? I've heard a lot of doctors be like, you have to have some vegetables in your <clears throat> diet so you can get those. Actually, no. I've, I've researched this because I'm not going to ever recommend something that I find out is in any way nutrient deficient. And so the big one you hear about carnivores, oh, you're going to get scurvy because you're not getting any vitamin C in your diet. So there's two things about that that people need to know. Number one, fresh meat does contain a small amount of vitamin C. And almost no nutritionists know this because when you look at just the standard chart, it says meat has zero vitamin C. Absolutely incorrect. Not true. About 20 milligrams per serving of vitamin C. Liver and other organs actually have a high amounts of vitamin C. That's the first factoid I want you to take away. Secondly, when you're eating a high carbohydrate diet, you guys know what the carbohydrates break down into ultimately. Sugar. 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 So when you're eating a high-carb diet, that's a high-sugar diet. You can't even argue that. Well, guess what? Sugar and vitamin C, they kind of use the same mechanism to get inside of your cell membranes. Okay? Now you're like, oh, okay. So if you're eating a high-sugar diet, then you need more vitamin C because it's having to compete with sugar to get into the cell. And you may even, you know, if you're living on a pizza and donut diet, you probably need to take a vitamin C supplement. But as you lower the carbohydrates that you're eating, then by definition, you're lowering the sugar, right? And that means that any amount of vitamin C that you have eaten is going to be, it's going to be much easier for it to get inside your cells where it actually has to be to do some good because all your receptors are not saturated with sugar from the carbohydrates you've been eating. And indeed, after I'd been carnivore for a year and a half, I had literally not eaten a morsel of plant food. No oranges, no berries, nothing. My vitamin C level was still right in the middle of normal. And so, yeah, you're like, what? Yeah. And so there are a lot of keto gurus or influencers out there who say, oh, you got to have some vitamin C or you'll get scurvy. I've yet to meet a carnivore. And some of these people have been carnivore for 15 years. I've yet to meet a single one that doesn't have radiant, beautiful skin. They typically look anywhere from five to 20 years younger than their chronological age. And they've got all their teeth, which is one of the things that happens when you develop scurvy is your teeth start to fall out and wounds stop healing and you just start to develop spontaneous wounds. I've yet to meet a carnivore who has had any of that happen to them. And so I think that there's a lot of research about vitamin C and the, the current recommended daily intake that we need to go back to the drawing board and re-research that in the with through the lens of a low carbohydrate diet because i think that your vitamin c needs plummet when you eat a low carb diet and also basically an, uh, vitamin c is an antioxidant right but when you're eating a diet rich in meat there's this thing called glutathione that you eat plenty of and you also make more of it when you're eating meat glutathione when it comes to being a, a, an antioxidant makes vitamin C start crying and go home because it's such a better antioxidant, okay? And so as a carnivore or as a fatty meat, heavy keto, 
you're making all these anti-inflammatories. They put vitamin C to shame and you don't need nearly as much vitamin C because you're eating a low carbohydrate, therefore a low sugar diet. Right? I know. Is like, my mind has exploded. <laughs> and I, we humans actually have all the machinery to make vitamin C. Because many, many mammals do make vitamin C. Your dog, you never have to give your dog vitamin C. They can make their own. Cats can make their own vitamin C. That's why they can eat nothing but meat and be fine. But humans, at some point in the evolution, we stop making a key enzyme that finishes the vitamin C production pathway. So we can't make it. And I actually, for a minute, was really researching deeply that maybe eating a carnivore diet somehow reactivated making the, vit- the vitamin C pathway. Because how could I eat meat, nothing but meat, for two years and still have a normal vitamin C level? How is that possible? But now I understand there, there is vitamin C. When you eat a ribeye, there's some vitamin C in there. Definitely when you eat organ meats, there's a good supply of vitamin C in that. And so my ribeyes and my chicken liver, I'm getting, and then plus I'm very low carb. So I'm not, my, all my receptors are not saturated with sugar. I'm getting all the vitamin C I need without having to take a supplement. That is so cool. Yeah, it is. So the human cool. body is really cool when you start to truly understand how it works. It's kind of a, a miracle. What kind of mindset do type 1 diabetics need to have to have the most success with changing how they eat? And how can type 1s develop that mindset? I think when a type 1 has had enough hypo episodes and when they've, when they've came back from the doctor and once again their A1C went up. And here's the, here's the rub. When you're a teenage type 1, you're probably just eating pizza and donuts and whatever, right? Because you're like, I'm going to live forever anyway. What's the matter? But when you get into your 20s and your 30s as a type 1 and you start to you know, hear the bells of mortality ringing up the road. You're like, I need to get serious about this, shit, right? I need to, I need to tighten up. This is no longer a joke. And then you, you do better and you follow the ADA guidelines to the letter and your A1C doesn't move. I think that's the, that is the, the, the red flag that all type one should go. Wait a minute. What's going on here? I mean, I've literally lived on whole wheat bread, fruit smoothies, because they say eat lots of fruits and veg, right? And they they intimate that that fruits just as good as veg, which I would opine is not the case at all if you're a type one diabetic. So, and and you're doing all these things right. You're avoiding red meat. You're avoiding saturated fat. You're not eating cookies, cakes, pies, donuts, any of that anymore. Anytime you have pizza, it's whole grain pizza crust, right? but your A1C didn't move. And you're like, so that's really it. I'm just screwed for life. And then that's when, if my dreams come true, they'll see one of my videos or they'll hear Colleen on a podcast or on a video or the, and they'll hear Jesse's acne story and they'll go, wait a minute. So you're telling me I've been suffering with this crap for five, 10, 20, 30 years and all along, there's been an answer right there, and nobody ever told me. I had to wait for Colleen to tell me. What the, what the, right? You see my point? And I think it's that, that epiphany for a type one. Or they, they trip and fall and find a, a copy of Dr. Bernstein's book at a rummage sale. And they're like, who's this kook? You know, I don't know. He, he was so, he was a type one diabetic, and his care was so terrible that he actually went back. He went to medical school. He didn't even start out as a doctor. And he's like, I got to go to medical school so these people will listen to me because I have discovered the answer to type 1 diabetes. It's a low-carb diet. And nobody would listen to him because he wasn't a doctor. So he went to med school so people would listen to him. And lo and behold, the endocrinologist still won't listen to Dr. Bernstein. But the average type 1 diabetic, when you say, hey, honey, hey, Bubba, this will work 100% of the time. And they're like, whatever, I'll try it. And then it works. They're like, okay, done. I'm done. That's it. Yep. I'm low carb the rest of my life. And then when they find out, oh, it's, there's hundreds of delicious foods you can eat on a low carb diet. Every bite of a low carbohydrate diet is nutrient dense, full of vitamins and minerals and amino acids and fatty acids. They're looking around like, why would I ever go back? 
you know, I might, I might for an anniversary, birthday, you know, my friend going away, I might do a little something stupid, but that's like every now and then some of us will have a drink or two too many at some celebratory event. And we're in no way proud of that after it's over. We're in no way like, oh, I missed that. I wish I could do that every day. Not, right? And so after a type one messes up a few times with, with too many carbs, they're like, nope, that's it. Never again. I'm not doing that. Even on my birthday, I'm just going to have a ribeye and some chicken liver, and I might have a few berries and whipped cream, and that's it. That's all I'm going to do. I'm never, ever going to harm my body the way I was harming it before I knew better. That's basically my whole mindset. I call it reaching your personal level of disgust. Yep. And then that's it. That's that's basically what happened to me is I reached that personal level of disgust, started yep. keto for the for the blood sugars and stayed for the weight loss. And 100%. like you were the person to like bonk me over the head with low carb. <laughs> yeah. I reached through the screen and smacked you and said, Hey, stop the carbs. Right? But what and I've actually talked to a lot of type ones who become quite bitter towards the medical establishment, right? And towards the American Diabetes Association. And let me say here now, type ones, hear me, okay? Don't do that because what you're, you're, that's not going to make any difference in the world. That's not going to change anything. What you need to do is you need to find every type one diabetic you know and spend that energy teaching them how to do this. Spend that, that frustration and that anger Turn that into production. Start a YouTube video uh, channel. Start a Facebook page. Join a Facebook page. Reach out to people because there are thousands upon thousands of type 1 diabetics who have never heard of the magic of a low-carb diet. They're out there all over the world. I don't care what country you're in. There's type 1s who are having a fruit juice smoothie every morning and then going, why the hell? What, what, what happened? Why is my blood sugar 500? Right. But my endocrinologist said, don't be upset. Don't be angry. Don't be resentful. Turn that into positive emotions. I am going to help other type ones so they don't have to suffer as long as I had to suffer before Dr. Barry or Colleen or Jesse reached out to me and said, hey, dummy, put down the carbs and walk away. So what advice do you have for like the younger diabetics out there or even young adults with diabetes? Yeah, I always try to hit their vanity point. I always try to hit their, their weak because, you know, Jesse cared about her A1C, sort of, and she cared about it. But, buddy, when the acne thing was on the table, she's like, oh, gotcha. And then that was it. Right, Jesse? Yeah, that was the thing for you. And so I, I make videos about acne and low carb. I make videos about psoriasis and eczema and low carb. Dandruff in low carb, right? Huge. Dandruff goes completely away when you get low carb enough and are eating enough fatty meat in your diet. And people look at me like I'm from Mars when I say that. But that, that YouTube video now has got more than a million views. And, and I have people come back to that video a year later and say, when I saw this video, I thought you were a moron. And then I, then I heard somebody else talk about keto and I'm like, well, what the hell? I'll try it. And guess what? My dandruff's gone. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Skin tags are another one. If you're, if you're chronically hyperinsulinemic, either because you're, you're eating too many carbs as a normal person or type two diabetic, or you're a type one and you're hyperinsulinemic because you're just injecting so much insulin because you're eating so many carbs, you're going to develop skin tags and they're going to keep getting bigger and bigger and more and more. And skin tags aren't really that attractive to most people. And most people tend to hate their skin tags, especially if they happen to be a huge one right here on their lower eyelid, like I used to have. When you go low carb, the skin tags start to shrink. And if you stay low carb long enough, they go completely away and you don't have to do anything about it. That video's got almost 4 million views now on YouTube about skin tags. And I've got people who come back two years after that video and comment and say, I thought you were a knucklehead when you made this video. Just I've been low carb or keto for a year or carnivore, and I saw this video pop up again. I went to the bathroom. All my skin tags are gone. I'm like, you're welcome. Uh, all of this talk about things that low carb gets rid of is reminding me of the things that I had and just completely forgot about after they disappeared. Right. Exactly. <laughs> you just forget that you used to have that or that you used to suffer from that. But so I try to 
because I, I had type one diabetics who were teenagers and I tried so hard because I had had, I, I knew that the oldest type one diabetic in my entire practice is in their fifties. There was none older. Right. And so that tells you something. If you're a type one diabetic whose A1C is high every single three months or six months, you're not going to live much past 50. That's going to be the end of you. And it won't be a pleasant death either. It won't be, you won't go to heaven in your sleep. You will suffer for months, months, months before you die. But I found out as a young physician that type one diabetics that are especially teenagers in early twenties, that doesn't mean anything to them because they're still immortal, right? They're still teenagers and all the testosterone and other stuff. They're like, that's never going to happen to me. And so I have to talk about vanity points like skin tags and eczema and psoriasis and, and acne and dandruff and that kind of stuff. And that's important to them. And so they'll hear, they'll hear, Oh, this will make my acne better a hundred times quicker than they will hear. Oh, this will help me live till I'm 90. Yeah. So you got to go where the people are. And that's what I try to do. I will definitely say like as a teenager, like, and thinking about like when I'm going to be 50, I, I physically can't picture that because I have so much on my plate right now. Yep. It just, it doesn't, it, to me, 50 doesn't exist. Like, no, 100%. That's exactly, and that's so important. Because, yeah. uh, first of all, the average teenager never wants to be 50 anyway, because 50 yeah. old. Who wants to be old? But it's, it's, it's I, I was a teenager once, so I, I get to say this. Teenagers are stupid, right? In that respect, we can't, we cannot see into the distant future as a teenager. It's impossible. Your brain just doesn't work that way, right? And so you have to talk to a teenager about things that are important to them right now. Because telling them, hey, one day you'll never live to be 60. And the average teenager would probably quietly under their breath say, good. They would want to be 60 anyway. But later in life, then they're like, when they're 30, they're like, no, I'd really like to be 60 one day. And it's too late because they've done all this irreparable damage by having that teenage mentality even into their early twenties. And so I try, I, sometimes in my videos, I don't even talk about, I'm still talking directly to type one diabetics, but I never mention the long-term sequel of, of type one diabetes because they can't hear that. They want to know how, what's going to make my acne better right now. So speaking or kind of along the lines of talking to people where they are, do you have any projects coming up that you're super excited about and you can share with us? Yeah, I'm, uh, I'm working on another book now called The Proper Human Diet, right? Which is going to probably ruffle a lot of feathers, but I'm kind of used to that because my first book, Lies My Doctor Told Me, that ruffled a few feathers. And so I, I don't mind that. I think sometimes the feathers need to be ruffled for the intellect to be awoken. And so I'm, I'm happy to ruffle some feathers if I can wake you up in the process. I'm going, we're, you know, the, the virus is about gone or there for a minute. We thought it was. So we've scheduled. I'm going to some conferences again. I'm going to be at the Omaha keto conference. I'm going to be at low carb uh, Boca Raton. We're thinking about having another proper human diet keto summit here in the Nashville area sometime later in the year. We haven't nailed that down yet because we don't know what the virus is going to do. Right. And so, but yeah, I'm, I'm out there on YouTube and Facebook all the time trying to help people of all ages, whether you're type one or type two, or you're going to become type two. I'm trying to help you prevent that. And I, I absolutely love it when I get a comment on a YouTube video. Hey, Dr. Barry, I'm a type one diabetic and my A1C went from 9.3 down to 5.3. Following your advice, thank you so much. Like that is worth more than gold to me. I love that so much. And like I would do this for free. If I could just get a comment like that on every video, right? So it makes me choke up when I think about it because it's so important to reach a type one where they're at and to help them understand this is all within your power. You don't even need to go to that special endocrinologist at the Mayo Clinic. That's absolutely actually not even necessary. You can fix this at home. I love that advice. Love it. Love it so much. What is the best way for our listeners to connect with you? So YouTube videos, at least two or three a week on, uh, if you just search Dr. Barry on YouTube, you should be able to find me. I've got a Facebook page that I, I'm, I'm active on every day. If I'm feeling especially snarky and I'll get on Twitter and, and fight with calorie in, calorie out people and, and plant-based people. 
when I'm feeling especially loving and helpful, I'll jump on in my Instagram and help people there. I'm everywhere because, you know, in order to help people, you got to go where the people are. And my wife taught me that years ago, and I'm a good husband. I always listen to my wife, eventually. Maybe not immediately, but eventually. And so I am following her advice, and I think there are a few people out there who are very appreciative that I listened to what she had to say. I, for sure, am one of them. Thank you so much for joining us today. I have loved talking to you this entire time. Absolutely. Absolutely. It was a blast. Thanks so much, ladies. Hey, if you like what you're listening to on this podcast, you have to join us in the Half Dead Pancreas Club. It's my private community where you'll connect face-to-face with other people with type 1 diabetes, get personalized emotional support, and learn how to handle anything T1D throws at you. Join us over at inspiredforward.com community. I can't wait to see you there.